0: Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I gotta say, feeling a bit rusty because we recorded a whole bunch of episodes in like June and we unraveled them over a period of time and uh, now I'm having to remember how to record things again. Uh, But I'm really excited to be kicking it off with someone uh, I feel like I've gotten to know decently over Twitter, Mike Conlow, the Director of Network Strategy at Cloudflare. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Chris. It's, it's great to be here. I'm a longtime listener of the podcast, and it's great to be able to participate.
0: Yeah, and you know, I feel like you're someone who popped up on my screen and before I even know what you did, I just saw what you're doing and read some of your analyses and I was like, oh, this guy's like serious. Like he's he's interested in this and he also does serious analytical work about what's going on in broadband space and looking at the data and, and things like that. And so I was I was definitely interested in in how you got into that.
1: Yeah, I think I have a little bit of an uncommon uh story. And so um just just very briefly I, I had a long career in political technology i i worked at the democratic national committee and i worked on the 2008 obama campaign and i worked back at the democratic national committee and i was a deputy cto on obama's 2012 campaign and i did political technology consulting for nonprofit and political groups after that for a long time and when the pandemic hit frankly I had too much time on my hands and i was a little bored and and I'm a data person by background. I think in SQL as well as I think in English. And so I got to downloading data. I started with the Form 477 data. Uh, Ardoff was just being released at, at the time and started working on analysis of, of those data sets and and really enjoyed it. I obviously have a passion for, for this. And at some point, the, the guy who became my boss um, tweeted something that, about how Cloudflare was looking for people who kind of think outside of the box or, or think differently. And I thought that, that sounds like me. And that's how I, I wound up at Cloudflare, but yeah, uh, downloading databases.
0: So is there, is there a world where um, I'm trying to think of something like, I don't know, like um, where you came across an interesting data set at the beginning of the pandemic on like bugs and you became really into entomology or something like that. Just, work? It,
1: just this one. I, I, I kind of, started following my my local politics for for a minute and I I I very quickly decided I think I was smart to do it like I don't want to get involved in in local politics what they're going to do with with the library and and instead instead focus my attention on on broadband data and and so but yeah that 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 has been the only one although I'm I'm very much a kind of uh tinkerer a, a technology tinkerer so I've got lots of kind of smart home and technology projects going on on the side, but but this is the bigger one.
0: Well, I think one of the things, and I want to come back to a second to talk about um, Cloudflare, what you do there, what Cloudflare does, but uh, you also now have a newsletter that uh, people can check out. Um, uh, what's the name of it? Mike's
1: Substack. I don't know if it has so, <laughs> if it, <laughs> it's a
0: Substack. So, um, yeah. you know, if people follow you on Twitter, they'll see the the stories. Um, one that just caught my eye most recently, where I was like, "Oh, you know what? We should have you on the show." And when we'll dig into some of the other topics later, but like um, you were just looking at the data around uh, the some of the implications of how they're collecting um, uh, data for buildings and whether and what the um, what is it the the base. What's the BSL?
1: Broadband Serviceable Location Fabric. Right,
0: right. So we've talked a little bit about that on past shows, and and we'll come back to that in a second. But I just wanted to flag for people that um, while you're listening, you might check check out Mike on um, on Twitter, and uh, and then uh, check out the newsletter stuff. Um, but Cloudflare is a company I've known about for a while. Uh, they they do seem like I'm not at all surprised to hear they're looking for someone who thinks outside the box because they're doing interesting things regularly, and I feel like. Maybe people have heard about them from like DDoS protection or things like that. But what does Cloudflare do, and what do you do there?
1: Cloudflare started as a content delivery network, protecting websites and delivering websites. Um, and it, the but it has grown significantly over the past few years, and is now um, a, as much or more a kind of network and security and internet performance company overall. And has we we have our own developer platform, kind of an edge compute platform, and a whole bunch of network as a service and, and network protection offerings. But also a, a big part of what intrigued me about Cloudflare uh, was we take very seriously the we're going to help build a better internet part of it. And so I want to make sure I didn't forget to, to mention a one of the Cloudflare projects that we have, which is a free offering to community and and nonprofit networks to connect them to the internet for free. And so if you are building, you know, in in tribal areas or certain kinds of nonprofits, if you can get a connection to one of our data centers, we'll connect you to the internet for free. We also provide protection for local government and election websites for, for free. And so Cloudflare really takes this help build a better internet Uh, part very seriously. And so when my resume came across and the the job was kind of like not super well-defined, but you're going to advocate for a better internet and we're going to find some some work for you to do on what we actually need to do that really fit well. And so my kind of day job is I'm on the team that builds out our network. What is where do we need to grow our network? What areas of the world are not performing the way they should? And where can we put new data centers that will make the internet faster? And uh, measuring measuring the time that content and service uh, take to reach eyeballs and, and how can we make that better?
0: Excellent. And I'm definitely going to be spreading the word around the, uh, uh, the tribal broadband boot camps and things like that to make sure they're aware of that. Yeah.
1: Project Pangea, if, if folks want to Google that.
0: Okay. Yeah the uh, the challenge is always um, getting them off of the the land into uh, into that data center.
1: Once you're at the data center, the connection to the internet is it's one piece of it. it, and and there's a lot of work in the middle mile, and there's a tremendous amount of work in the in the last mile. And so I I think while while we're we're trying to help with this one piece, it, I think it would be also interesting if if Cloudflare could have more partnerships with others who are doing middle mile. and and last mile to kind of offer it as a whole service, because, you know, I I can feel for the folks who are building these networks from scratch and the amount of work going into both the last mile and the middle mile. And so we want to help with what we can, but we also want to help as much as we can.
0: Mm -hmm. Getting to the the BSL, the Broadband Serviceable Locations. Uh, It was funny because I... um... It took me, I know that other people have um, have also been talking about this, but uh, the implications I had not considered. Um, but why don't you walk us through that most recent um, newsletter post about uh, what the FCC is doing and not not necessarily the FCC is crazy to do it this way, but what the implications are.
1: Well, I, I guess I'll first by making what may be a controversial statement, which is I, I think that there's a lot of good in the Form 477 data. Um, I I think it's a very valuable data set. It it has limitations. Um, An obvious limitation is that if one person is served in the census block, the whole census block is considered served. We we kind of all know that that limitation now.
0: And the corollary of just briefly of that is also that if there are two service providers, um, you don't actually know if they are compete with each other or or anything else. And so like there's um, there's a number of there's a number of additional challenges with that um, problem.
1: Right. If an area is not served, we know that it is is not served i, I don't right. think that there's debate Take that to about, the bank <laughs> right um and i think that there are you know it also I, we don't talk about it a lot but there's a technology code on the form 477 data we use it has that the, frequently yeah yeah and and i do too it has the exact kind of dsl service and the exact docsis uh version of of each census block uh so there's some there's some really good data there there too and so i what getting into that that post what I would recommend happens as part of this new mapping process is we make sure that the good of the form 7, 7, form 477 data is carried through to the new broadband serviceable location fabric maps. And and in particular, uh, right now, it is fairly easy to come up with numbers about what how many Americans are unserved or underserved by broadband. How many housing units are- At least a floor on that. Yeah, a floor on that. And- I, I would hope that with this, when once we're all up over to the new maps, which are going to be great, that we can still <laughs> produce numbers that are as simple as, as that. And so, one of in reading through the latest update from the FCC, one thing that just concerned me a little bit, and I, I don't have access to data. It's another point we should we should talk about is to make sure that when this this happens, that we're not measuring the digital divide in terms of broadband serviceable locations, because that doesn't feel terribly real real to me. It includes businesses. It includes residences. There was a, a line that maybe you're referencing in there that there will be a count of housing units that are associated with a broadband serviceable location, but it they can't guarantee that that is reliable. It's based on tax records and stuff that are not universally available. So Do we know the relationship between a broadband serviceable location and a housing unit and the number of people that live there? And so the the link between those and kind of census data or kind of some other kind of ground truth about the number of people who are, are represented, I think, is really important.
0: I think the issue is that a broadband serviceable location just to, to be really clear could include um a single person living alone uh, or it could include a thousand units and presumably uh, that most of the cases where that where that location has a thousand units or three hundred units or whatever, everyone will have service but One of the things I've found when you're dealing with very large numbers of people in different circumstances and cities and rural areas is that there's all kinds of weird exceptions. You know, I I, I, I was joking the other day that, like, people think 99% is all the time. But it's not. Right. <laughs> when you're dealing with large <laughs> right. numbers, one percent is a lot. Um, right. And so you're going to have a number. You might have a million people that are left out because you've assumed that every location or every uh, every household within a, um, a apartment building has service. Because some of them do.
1: Right, and and the stakes the, the stakes are very very high here because the infrastructure money is given out based on these new maps, and then the new maps are um you know for our unserved the the number of unserved locations is is what decides how the money's allocated by state and so the, the stakes are the stakes are very high um and i have a lot of sympathy for the the fcc folks who are are working on these maps because they they are so important and and there is su- such tremendous pressure uh to to get them right and to get them fast and that's that's hard
0: well and this is where i think i think the fcc has made some errors on this and um in that i think it is foolish to try to resolve all of this the location fabric stuff as well as the new mapping technology and the challenge process and everything in order to get the rough figures to NTIA so they can divide the $42.5 billion among the states. I feel like the smartest thing to do would have been to say, we're going to use Form 477 data. We know it's not perfect, but we would expect that any errors are correlated and that like even if we don't have the exact right numbers for Georgia, we're going to make the same mistakes in Georgia as in Alabama, and the proportions are going to be roughly the same for how many unserved people there are, and we're going to use that to get money out the door because I I have no faith that that in you know that in early twenty twenty three that we will have maps that people can broadly uh, agree upon.
1: I in part agree. I, I think there is a little bit of an issue, which is that Congress wrote into the law mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff. they They wrote into the law how exactly how these new maps were going to be created. Congress has some talents, but you know, deciding exactly how we're going to develop new maps um, I'm not sure is one of them and, and it goes into a lot of detail and so the the road was was pretty well laid out in front of uh, in, in front of the FCC on what exactly they have to do and, and how the infrastructure money will be doled out but I, I agree with you that there should we should find a way I, I think that there's like a hundred million per state given given out as like the beginnings right. but I, I agree with you we should find a way. To give out as much of it as possible uh, earlier on, and then true it up uh, at, at the end. Save enough that you can you can true it up um, at, at the end. Because I, I agree with you. We need to we need to get started. And and if it if the new maps and the challenges and stuff drag it out into into next year, I, I think that would be unfortunate. When when I agree with you that we know we know where to start. There's a lot of planning to do. It, let, let's let's get going.
0: And I'm curious, because you had said the maps, and I don't know if you've heard, um, you, you, I think you expressed some optimism around the new maps being good, and I feel like um, you know Doug Dawson and I are deeply pessimistic about this whenever we talk about it publicly. <laughs> um, because I just see that, like, I mean, we're talking about more than 100 million serviceable locations that everyone has to agree upon. Um, not, not down to the last one, but I mean, to get it roughly, like even just that alone is a daunting task. And then on top of that, we have to figure out how we're going to accept the modeling of DSL and wireless service when those providers do not know with any degree of certainty what how each broadband serviceable location will um, receive their service and what kind of service would be available there and um, and so when I look at those two things and I think it's important because I mean I, I'm willing to just say all right let's just ignore DSL because it like, gets more right. of a problem than it's worth but right. fixed wireless can do quite a bit and so and that's the real challenge of figuring out how one like I mean you could you could probably say that every single company that submits fixed wireless data is wrong, right?
1: At some level, if you wanted to, right? I agree that fixed wireless is is a tricky part of it, and and also because fixed wireless kind of sits kind of across the the unserved and definitely the underserved divide in in some cases. And so with fiber, you're obviously going to be served. Right. With with cable, you're almost certainly going to be served by whatever definition we we come up with and there are there are future docs versions that will make cable even even better with, with dsl I'm, I'm with you you're 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 unserved in my mind i don't care what the, the data says with, with fixed wireless it is just so dependent on a little bit on the technology but a lot on the location and the and the line of sight and the density of the trees and, and this stuff and and I, time I i hear don't think even. yeah and so and that could very legitimately put a a house uh, where the where the the antenna is on the house, whether it can get above the tree line. Um, and so and it, that could very realistically change somebody from served to underserved or 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 unserved. and and how that gets represented in the data it feels very important and, and very hard. Would you like that job? Like, is that something where you're just like, oh man, that would be an interesting challenge? Or
0: are you just like, no, nah, I'm really happy to just not be responsible for that because I don't want it. I, I'll be honest about it. <laughs> <that." laughs>
1: I want to analyze the data. Um, sure. I I want to, you know, I think that the new rules, if I understand them correctly, the, the propagation models will will be public. And so in each fixed wireless provider will need to provide details of, of how they're doing those propagation models. And, and so I would... Like to help make sure that we are kind of measuring them accurately and then that if we're saying that some place is served by fixed wireless, that you actually can get a the, the signal that is promised by that.
0: And that leads us right into, I think, one of the other interesting discussions that you came out, um, I, I think, organically with something that I've been talking about with John Chambers in the past and deeply concerned about, which is this question of that it's secret, how much we think it'll cost. And we, I mean, how much it's secret, how much the government thinks it will cost to pass a location effectively, right? With a modeling done by CostQuest. I, I can't imagine that there's a justification for that. There's, there's just no real good reason that the FCC should allow some of this stuff to remain a secret when it's so important for um, getting it right and oversight, I think.
1: As a kind of Freelance analyst on on this stuff. We need public access to to the data, and I, I guess I understand what is happening, which is that um, you know the the FCC presumably it doesn't cost as much if if it's not public because if once it's public then you can't can't sell it to anyone else or at least it has a lot less value if if it doesn't cost as
0: much to the FCC in that direct line item but I feel like ultimately we all end up paying for it in multiple ways right I mean the fact that the federal government doesn't have like a better listing of all of the different uh, locations in the country you know I think is something that we are paying for now at the FCC right
1: (laughs) yeah and and now I mean every single state it should and some already do they're going to need a, a an estimate of how much each location costs to serve, and they're going to have to buy that themselves someplace. And it, wouldn't it be that much more efficient if we could all be using a a single uh, data set? And I think the same goes for the the location fabric, it, which is, I, I, you know, if I understand correctly, there'll be like a map that you could see on a location by location basis, but that the the actual raw data wouldn't wouldn't be available because of kind of contracting issues
0: yeah i find that i mean just really frustrating i i I don't remember when it was although i do remember a second or third time that i came across the idea but the 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 first time i came across the idea of just how important it was to have open data blew me away like sort of what NOAA does right like the national oceanic and atmosphere administration if i got that right um they they make all the weather forecasting possible right and they make all this available and and at first i was like oh like like, why is the government doing that? And oh, because like farmers depend on it, businesses depend on it, UPS depends, like everyone freaking depends on it. And, like, right. And like, right. it's amazing how important open data is to build upon. And I feel like that's the foundation of a of a functioning market as well, is having opening, open data that different people, when everything's proprietary, you can't have any real competition or choice.
1: Yep. And I, I think the, the FCC has done a great job of that in, in the past. I, the Form 477 data and a lot of the FCC's projections and RDOF results and other auction oh, results yeah. and yeah. the licensing databases. And there there is a lot out there. Let's keep going in that direction. Right. And I'll I just note that USAC is not in that
0: same category in my mind. But the FCC, particularly with RDOF and the CAF2, I thought was remarkably transparent.
1: Yep. And especially in a world in, in which there, there are a lot of broadband funding programs across a bunch of different agencies and states and stuff. And so let, let's make it easier to, for, for folks to combine those data sets and, and analyze them, not harder. Uh, I'll give you an example of this is one that I think we all kind of collectively had access to and missed, which is the, the problems in, in RDOF. You know, Derek Turner at Free Press did a lot of great research on this and un- un- uncovering you know, road medians and, and stuff that, mm-hmm. that were eligible and were funded. Those were public, and there were a couple rounds before the auction of here are the eligible locations, they're on our website, and nobody seemed to notice un- until afterwards that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be open data it just means that that next next time we should somebody shouldn't notice beforehand
0: no but i I think it really conveys the value of open data when in uh, an agency is not doing the verification work right i mean like i think the like you said that 477 data being open explained why when barrier free claimed to serve every last location in pennsylvania with fiber optics despite having not done very much the, the six months before we could dig into that and figure out why and and make an issue of it and and the FCC should have caught that just like the FCC should have caught the median stuff like like Derek Turner is terrific but the FCC should have the resources to hire multiple Derek Turner types who are doing that work and the fact that they are not doing that work well is it makes it even more important that it all be open I would think
1: right and, and that, that was a long that was a long time ago now and I think. I think people would would argue I didn't follow it that closely at the time that that, that process was was rushed, at, but but still I t- yeah I agree.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's sort of it's rushed, but it's also like I I, I don't I fiz- this is the thing I don't understand and no one's ever. Explain it to me yet? I mean, I will. I'll stop chirping about it when I <laughs> when I <get laughs> to finish it. But like, the FCC is really late on the four seven seven data right now, and I don't understand why it takes it so long to get the data out when it doesn't do very much sanity checking on whether or not it's accurate. Like, I just mm-hmm. I don't understand. Like, it's like aging in, in a cave somewhere, like cheese, while like, and then all of a sudden it'll be released. But as as far as I can tell, there's not like a team of people who are working on it in for months. You know, like they're just sort of they put it in a vault and then they're like, oh, we should release it now. And they, <laughs> I don't, I don't understand the process.
1: And um... I, I don't know how all that works, but I, I, I certainly would love to be using data that's more up to date than December of 2020. <laughs> <Seriously>? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I guess a related point just really quickly is that the census's ACS data is also super important here. That's our best look at who has adopted broadband. And that data is also late. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they missed a year or, or something, but you know, that if you average over five years, that data goes down to the block group level and is our only, you know, the 477 4- 4- 7- data says that basically a hundred percent of urban areas are served by broadband. And yeah, there's a lot of coaxial cable in, in urban areas, but it, you, unless you have the ACS data from the census, you don't know how many people are actually using the service and and so both of those access and adoption are are crucial data sets to have
0: i agree i'll i'll just note though also i feel like sometimes people um, uh, give a little bit too much weight to the ACS data, just in the sense that, like, um, I'm interested in the change over time generally because, again, I think that's often correlated. But, like, when we look at, like, how many people say that they use satellite service, um, when we then try to square that up with other known things, and, and actually I say we, but really Derek Turner, who's done this work also, um, specifically and who I trust on this, you know, he finds that, like, the, it's, like, four times the number of people that actually use satellite tell the ACS that they use satellite because they're just confused about the technology. So, hmm. um, yeah. so like, I'm always looking at that for change over time, as opposed to like, what's the specific percentage Mm-hmm. The, uh, I wanted to ask you about how you stay informed on this stuff because, you know, you're working, you know, I, you know, I mean, tell me I'm wrong, but I think of you as being slightly more in it than telecom, um, and, and being more technological as opposed to telecom. And I feel like it's super easy. Like there's so many places to like learn about technology, you know, yeah, Ars Technica, the verge, there's so many wonderful places. Um, and then in telecom, it feels like you very rapidly run into like industry specific things that can be intimidating for, for people that aren't in the business every day, which is less so for you, but for another person that's listening, like, what do you recommend for people to get up to speed on this stuff when they're not doing it 24 seven?
1: It is, it is a little bit, uh, inaccessible and we're not always super welcoming of, of new people into the conversation. And, and I, I, you know, I'd like to give you credit. I think you were one of the first people who responded to me when I wanted to have a conversation on Twitter or something. And Harold Feld's Uh, Two, uh, what I do personally is I use, I I read the, the Benton Institute digest. I read the Keller and Heckman uh, digest um, Mm -hmm. almost, almost every, every day. I, I also read a bunch of industry um, stuff. I think that's probably more kind of my day job related, but light reading and broadband bunch and a bunch of other things where where some of the industry speak um, starts to, starts to come in. But, uh, um, and then I, I also use I, I use the historical record that you've built up with this podcast. And so um, you, know, for example, I listened when I first got started, I listened to all of your old Ammon episodes. and there's probably five or six, maybe maybe even a couple more than that, including ones where, you, where you're out there. And to understand the the model that different um communities and networks are using to set up and, and how they actually work. And so there there's a lot out there, this podcast being a, a prime example of historical stuff as well as kind of keeping up to date on a on a day-to-day basis.
0: Yeah, that's and I just I'll take a second to say that when we set up Muninetworks.org, um, you know, my goal was Again, I mean, I keep saying this like, like change over time. Like, I wanted to have a tagging system that I hope makes it easy, and I think we're actually we've been been screwing around for nine months now trying to. Um, uh, we got a, a version of the communitynetworks. dot org in development that will hopefully be more simple and easy to use, and I've been trying to do a um uh an overview of the tagging system which is out of control because i just feel like at this point it's just <laughs> too intimidating for anyone to work at, <laughs> look mm-hmm. at. and but like you know, the goal is absolutely if you're like oh i want to see what's going on Ammon. well you should be able to like click a button and get a listing of all the Ammon related stuff and um that's our goal so um, i'm glad it, it always warms my heart when i know when i hear that someone's using it in that way <laughs> yeah So let me ask you, what are you what are you excited about as we close out the interview? Like, um, as we look forward, I feel like you know I'm often sort of like worried about things, but um, but what are you looking forward to in terms of things where you're like, you know what, this problem is going to be solved soon?
1: One thing that I'm I'm very passionate about, um, and there's a lot of momentum behind, is the importance of of latency in the overall internet connection. Mm -hmm. And so when I think of speed, I think of latency. Speed to me is not the throughput of the connection. It is how fast that, they, that you can request data and it can get back to you. And I think you know, going back, it's actually almost ten years exactly. There was a, a Google study that showed that above about five megabits per second, a web page doesn't load any faster, or a very negligible improvement in page load time for throughput above about five megabits per second. Whereas if, if, if you have the latency uh, in the connection, you can almost half the page load time. And so we always talk about latency in terms of gaming. It's a lot more important than that. It, it's, about, um, it's about page load time. It's about gaming. It's about, you know, if you think about swiping on a map on your phone, if you can have really good latency, you don't need to preload that data to go to your phone. It, it, your phone can respond respond to the swipe, that means less throughput.
0: Let me let me try to make this point in a sort of a hobby horse that I've had for a long time. And, and you can tell me that, that I'm crazy, but um, this is where I think latency is really important, right? Like I think of this, there's two different things in my in in the one is um one is the um, performance of applications and one is uh security related the security one's easy to grasp all of our machines are porous and at risk of ransomware right even apple products pcs whatever like everything has massive vulnerabilities because they're super complicated and difficult to secure and there's not a lot of market um you know incentive to focus on securing them um I think one of the things that happens in a low latency, um, high, um, in, a, in a world where everyone has connected, is we have dumber computers that are cheaper, that are basically thin clients, and we don't have to worry about securing them, the complicated stuff happens in a local cloud, and we're accessing it, and we don't notice the difference because we have that low latency, right? Um, and so I think security is one. The other is this fricking Nikon keeps coming out with like better. Camera. I mean, all, all of them do, but I like Nikon. Um, and, um, and every time I, do, I have to buy another computer and then like two years later, you know, there's another, I'm sorry. And I shoot professionally. Not everyone is on this upgrade cycle, but like, um, I would much rather have a computer that I could use for five or six years. And I'll just like pay Adobe a little bit more money. And they do all the processing in the cloud as I'm going through these hundreds of images for clients. And you know that for those things, like, it would be wonderful to have those scenarios, and I think everyone would pay less. We'd have less e-waste. There's, there's so many benefits of moving in that direction.
1: I think we're we're close to to there. It, you know, I, I mean, I, I have a very expensive MacBook, but I use it as a client for cloud services. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, that, it's a slight exaggeration, but but not not much of one. And I think when going back to my political campaign life, we we gave people Chromebooks um because of the security because they're they're better security wise and and if they if they disappear there's there's not anything there to uh to to take and so I, I think we we may be cl- closer or already there uh to what to what you're describing.
0: Right, but I think of like my wife's experience working for the City of Minneapolis or the State of Minnesota where they're using like Citrix software on a high latency right. connection and they yeah. hate it and they're like well, this technology sucks and it's like well, it actually works really well if you give it the right specifications.
1: <laughs> right. Yep, that I think that's a great that's a a great example of of and all of that is latency behind the scenes. All of that it is dependent on low latency and it's it's hard to put into a, a metric in the same way that, that throughput is, but yeah, I think it's a great example. Excellent. Well, I'm,
0: I'm excited that I feel like you're probably the the most technically sophisticated person I've explained this vision to. And i um, not like, <laughs> no, it's not gonna happen, Chris. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for the time today. And I really, I, I one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is um, I just think it's really exciting that I feel like you show like, you know, one does not have to have spent decades, you know, working um, in the industry. You don't have to have like tons of degrees in telecom. You know, you can you can jump into this. You can learn it and, um, and do really interesting analyses and make a difference. So I think you're making a difference.
2: And I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I think you are too, Chris. Thank you. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at Community Nets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at Muni Networks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast.